Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Welcome to Crosspoint. So good to see you all today. Uh, I love being here with you. It's an honor to, to just come together all in the same room and, and sit at our God's feet and hear what he has to say to us. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah 9. Uh, we're going to be going through nine, chapter 9, 10, and 11 today. So we'll be getting out of here at about 3 in the afternoon. It's all good. Uh, and no, I'm joking. Uh, we're just so glad you're here. Uh, that's page 1013, by the way, in the Bible that's in front of you, in the, in the information rack in front of you. Uh, before we dig into that, though, I just want to ask you a question. Do you ever look around uh, at the world and begin to feel like you don't recognize the world around you? Uh, that your vision of the way things, that your vision of the way things should be, or even your vision of the way you ought to be, doesn't match reality. Do you ever feel just kind of misplaced? Do you ever feel like there's just something off? I know I do. Um, in two weeks, we're going to be starting a series I'm really excited about. It's going to be in the book of First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, and one of his friends, wrote this letter inspired by God to the church. And, and he opens it by saying, you're exiles. You're at home, but you're not at home. And, and so we get to have this amazing block of weeks where we get to have God speak to us through the book of First Peter, right exactly where I think many of us feel. So I'd encourage you not to miss even one week of that series. Uh, it's going to be so important for you to live your life honoring Jesus in this day and age. Bring open hands preconceptions you may have, leave them at the door as best as you can. The other ones, bring them in and we'll, we'll let the Lord deal with those, right? But make sure you're here for that. Today, we're in Zechariah 9, 10 and 11, and uh, this is an, a massively important uh, passage of prophecy poetry. What we're reading, in fact, if you look at your Bible and you kind of see that it's not in block paragraphs, but it kind of looks a little bit more staggered, that means it's poetry. So this is not only poetry, it's not only art, but it's prophecy. And we're going to look at it from a 30,000 foot view. We want to kind of back up and see these three chapters and say, what is the big flow of it? What does it really say? And then you on your own this week, if you're so inclined, can go back then and look at the smaller pieces and maybe piece those together. And it would be very beneficial for you. But we're going to highlight the main points along the way so that we can absorb this big picture of what's happening. But first, let me give you a little refresher of what's been going on. And if you haven't been here, no big deal. We can catch up today. Uh, but I want to give you a little bit of background of what's been happening here in Zechariah and also historically. So the people of Israel had been taken away to exile in Babylon. 
This was what God had prophesied way back in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses and said, if you don't obey me, if you break my covenant, I will let you become uh, prisoners of a foreign nation. They've been all taken, most of them taken to Babylon. They've been slaves there for 70 years. Uh, But now they've returned. God in his grace said, I'm gonna give you another chance. I'm stubborn. I want this to work. Let them come back to, to, to Israel, many of them. But once again, they have forgotten him and are serving their own purposes. And God's message to them that Matt's been covering is this, come back to me. Don't be like your ancestors who constantly rejected my leadership and my grace. I extend grace, I extend grace so that you can become my holy people. Don't be like your ancestors who said, we'll do it our way. And the question that the people in Zechariah's day, the people of Israel ask Zechariah back is, well, is God going to usher in his kingdom now? Are we, go- are we ready? Is he coming Is he going to put all of this craziness in the world to an end? And Zechariah's answer to their question is another question. Are you becoming the kind of person who will receive God's king when he comes to you? Are you, you ask, is God ushering in his kingdom? But I ask to you, Zechariah says, are you becoming the kind of person that will receive God's king when he comes to you? If the king came to you, would you invite him in? I think we could stop right now and meditate on that for the rest of the the time in this service. What a huge question for us to stop and ask ourselves. When Jesus comes to me and says, I want to extend this grace to you or I want to remove this sin from your life, do you receive him or do you say, no, I'll shut the door, I've got this one. So this question leads up to our passage for today, chapter 9 through 11. So just the structure of the book, it seems that chapters 9 through 11 that we're going to be talking about today are Zechariah's prophecy of Jesus' first coming when he was born of a virgin and he grew up and he died on a cross and rose from the dead. This section we're in today seems to be a prophecy saying here's some stuff that's going to happen when Jesus comes the first time. And then in chapters 12 through 14, it seems that that is a prophecy of his second coming. That's not happened yet. That's to be seen in a further date. So in these chapters, God gives the people a preview of how they will respond when this promised shepherd king comes. And that's the main picture that Zechariah paints is this king who's coming, but he's also a shepherd. A king, but caring for the flock. And this passage is a total roller coaster. Total roller coaster. We see God's faithfulness. We see him promising to do great things with Israel. We see these stunning predictions about Jesus. I mean, down to the letter, things that Jesus did 500 years later. Amazing. But we also see Israel's tragic and deep rejection of their Messiah, Jesus. And though we see the bleakness of their rebellion, we'll see that God never gives up on them. God never gives up on them. In the darkest of their days, there's this brilliant glimmer of hope. He doesn't leave us without hope. He speaks truth, but he speaks hope. So we're going to read through these sections of this very long passage, just little bits of it. We won't cover all of it. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read some of the main signposts and just explain its meaning as we go. So Zechariah 9, starting at verse 1. 
The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. I'll explain that in a minute. And Damascus, its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So not living in ancient Israel, what I just read is probably complete uh, mystery to most of us in this room. It was to me when I first came to the passage to study it. That you have to be able to picture the geography that's happening here. So to do that, I'm going to take us out of Israel in home sweet home, California. How about that? To picture the movement that's happening here. Imagine that California is its own country. And imagine that uh, L.A. County... Is, uh, is in the footprint of California, but it, it is its own uh, autonomous region uh, that's filled with enemies. Some of you, that's easy to imagine. Some of you, it's not. Imagine that L.A. is its own autonomous region, and they don't like us. And then also, all the surrounding uh, states around California are their own countries. Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, they're all enemies, and they've been invading us for centuries, okay? What this pictures is God marching down through Washington, and then he gets some stuff in the middle of Oregon, and then goes over to the coast of Oregon and takes care of some really strong cities there that have been causing us trouble. And then he comes down into California, goes all the way down to L.A., and he deals with them. He says, you guys have all messed with my Californians far too long. And now I'm gonna deal with you and I'm gonna stop the violence you've been perpetrating against California. That's the geographic picture that's painted here in verses one through four. Israel was completely surrounded by their enemies, much like today. Not only this, but Israel itself was split into two competing kingdoms. So imagine California being split north and south. Judah was the south, is how they referred to the south, and Israel is how they referred to all the rest of the, the uh, tribes that were in the north, uh, much like America was during the Civil War. So verses 1 through 4, like I said, describes God's intention to overcome all of these horrible threats and vanquish Israel's enemies from the north. So Washington and Oregon, bad news for you guys. California's going to be taken care of by God. And then 5 through 8 describes God's promise to also remove Israel's threats from the south. So L.A. County, God takes care of them. So the interesting thing is that this defeat of Israel's enemies is strikingly similar to when Alexander the Great conquested this area but spared the Jews about 200 years later after this. If you read the uh, historical accounts of Alexander the Great coming down into Palestine, you'll see him coming through Hadrach and then Hamath. And then you'll see him bypassing in Tyre and Sidon, blew those places away. And then comes all the way down, bypasses the Jews in Judah, and comes all the way down to the area of the Philistines, deals with them, and then treats Israel peacefully. Amazing prophecy here. But there's an interesting thing we see here in the prophecy in verses 6 and 7. Look there with me, 9, 6, and 7. 
A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. That's, that's down in the area where like Southern California would have been. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. That's that same area. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. But look at this. He's talking about these Gentile nations who are, who are enemies of Israel. And he says, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. That's, Judah's part of Israel. This Gentile enemy nation is going to somehow be absorbed into God's kingdom. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were a people that back in the days of King David, King David allowed them to be part of the people of Israel. They were absorbed into God's people. In God's vision of overcoming Israel's Gentile enemies, he envisions these Gentile enemies also becoming part of the family. God's vision of the future of this world is a victory that reconciles. Most of the victories we see on planet Earth today end up with someone standing proudly in victory over a bunch of dead bodies over a defeated foe who, who now must cower in fear of what might happen to them next. That's what most victories in our world look like. The victory that God is envisioning here in Zechariah 9 is a victory that brings people together into a family. Not just Israel, not just one race, but people from across the globe. God says, I'm going to do something that will remove the threat while also bringing those who threaten into my family. Those who threaten my people, my goal is not just to be victorious over them, my goal is to bring them in. And Zechariah's readers, no, no question, asked, How? How would you have both victory and reconciliation at the same time? Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's just Jerusalem, Israel's capital city. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? The people in Zechariah's day ask, how is it that you could bring a victory that would also reconcile? And God's answer to the question how is a who. He answers with a who. He says, I'm gonna send you a human king. We know he's human because he's riding into a real city on a donkey. That's what humans do. This is a human king. But he won't ride into Jerusalem pridefully and powerfully on a war horse. You see, if an Israeli king was going to ride in and, uh, on, a, on a campaign, of, of a military campaign, a mission to conquer, he would have ridden on a horse. But if you were part of a city and you saw the Israeli king that day coming, riding on a donkey, and you're one of the, uh, the guys on the wall protecting the city, and you see a king with his entourage riding on a donkey... You'd yell back, it's okay, guys, he's here for peace. It's not a war setting. 
It's a peace setting. We'll come to you humbly, riding on a donkey on a mission of peace. Can you think of anyone who came to the people of Israel humbly and rode into Jerusalem, not as a warrior, but on a donkey, bringing peace? Easiest answer in the world, guys. Say it. Jesus. This isn't just a picture of how Jesus would bring peace. It's actually what Jesus did. You can read it in the Gospels. He got on a donkey and he rode literally into Jerusalem with people around him shouting, Lord, save, Lord, save. And this is an amazing yet confusing vision for the original readers. God, you said you're going to defeat our enemies and remove them as threats. But then you show us a king who isn't in a stance of war, but of peace. How can this be? How can we be promised peace and that our enemies will be dealt with, but the king is not riding on a war horse, he's riding humbly on a donkey? But the picture gets even more perplexing as Zechariah continues to tell the story. If you look in verse 16, chapter 9, verse 16, on that day, talking about the same day, the Lord, Yahweh, that is the name for God, God's personal name, on that day, Yahweh, their God, will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Do you see how he's mixing shepherd and king there? Flock, but jewels on a crown. He's a shepherd king. But he says, Yahweh, God's doing this. 17, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Zechariah envisions God himself being the one who comes to save. So he's just envisioned a human king riding on a donkey coming to save and bring peace. And now he says, Yahweh himself, God himself will be the one riding in to bring you peace. So the people in Zechariah's day would say, so, so who's it going to be? Who's riding in to save us? A human king or God? A human king or God? Hey. And Zechariah says, yes. God's victory that brings reconciliation will be accomplished according to the word of Zechariah will be accomplished through a human king who is also God. You see what he did there? He takes a picture and then another picture and he does this and people's minds. But a lot of them missed it. A lot of them didn't see what he was saying. God promised Israel's salvation through a righteous shepherd king. That's who Jesus is. He is a king of kings. He has all power and authority. He cannot be matched. His power is unquestionable. His authority in this world is unrivaled. And yet, he's your shepherd. He cares for you. He feeds you. He tends to your need. And that is the exact picture that Zechariah wants us to see. I hate to ruin it, but there's a problem. There's a problem. Read 10, chapter 10, starting at verse 1. 
Ask rain from Yahweh. In the season of the spring rain, from Yahweh who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods, these are, these are idols, utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people, Israel, wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger, this is God speaking, is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Do you see the problem? God wants to bring blessing and restoration, but there's a gigantic problem, roadblock preventing it. What's the problem? It's Israel's spiritual and political leaders who are consistently rejecting God's leadership and replace him constantly with false shepherds and false hopes. God's saying, I'm coming to the people with grace and hope, but the leaders of the people keep leading them astray with false prophecy, false hope, idols, sin. So Zechariah previews this problem, but then suddenly, in the middle of verse 3, jumps back to hope. 10-3, about halfway through. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. See what he just did there? He took some sheep and turned them into battle horses. I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to make them more than they are. From him, verse 4, shall come the cornerstone. From him, God, comes the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together. See, here in this little passage, it's as if God says, before we get too deep into the problem with your leaders, I want to remind you of what I will accomplish. There's a problem, yes. It's a big problem. But no matter what they do, I will accomplish what I will accomplish. They will not stop my plans to bless and to save no matter how bad the leaders are that you're under, no matter how badly they lead the people astray, I will do what I will do. Don't ever lose hope. In this day and age, don't ever lose hope. Doesn't matter what's happening in Washington or Sacramento, it doesn't matter. It does, but it doesn't. Don't ever lose hope. God will save. God will install Jesus as king of this entire world. Don't lose hope. Man's resistance cannot compete with God's resilience. Man's resistance will not compete with God's resilience. God is resilient. He can, he can come to the earth and bless and save, and then people can reject him, and he says, I'm coming back. And he comes again, and he comes again. His ability to forgive is greater than our ability to rebel. He keeps coming back and coming back. And in the rest of this chapter 10, God constructs this amazing vision of the future full of salvation, forgiveness, and relational reconciliation, not just within Israel, but also the nations. In verse 6, he picks up, I will strengthen the house of Judah, this is the southern kingdom, and I will save the house of Joseph, that's the northern kingdom. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. That's forgiveness. 
For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. No matter what Israel is going to face in the coming decades and centuries, this is their future, God's salvation. God keeps coming back. And even so, now God returns to the problem he previewed at the beginning of chapter 10, the false shepherds who are leading Israel. First thing he does is he describes the destruction that will bring he, that they will bring these shepherds, and he second describes what they do that will bring it on. So he says, "Here's the destruction that's going to happen," and then let me explain to you why it's happening. He does this with a vision of destruction of Israel's trees, symbolizing Israel's destruction, starting at the north, moving all the way to the south. Look at this together, verse eleven. Open your doors, O Lebanon. That's in the north of Israel that the fire may devour your cedars, huge trees. Wail, O cypress, a little bit smaller trees, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks, even smaller trees, of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket, that's a small shrub, of the Jordan is ruined. Zechariah promises, prophesies, great destruction coming from the north through the south that will affect everyone in Israel, great and small. Can any of the history nerds in here guess which destructive force coming from the north all the way down and pillaging all the way through the south he might be describing here? History nerds, anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Rome. Rome. The Roman Empire in 63 BC conquered and occupied Israel and made it a vassal state. And then a little less than 133 years later, this is now after Jesus was born, died, and raised from the dead in 70 AD, about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in response to a Jewish rebellion, Rome ransacked Israel from top to bottom, ending in a siege of Jerusalem that completely destroyed the Jewish temple. Zechariah here is, is predicting, prophesying, Israel's rebellion will bring on yet another enemy. And God will let the enemy do what the enemy wants to do because Israel has not repented. And, and, and unfortunately for Israel, that's what destroyed them completely as a, as a country. And it was a couple thousand years until they became a country again. So that's what is going to happen. But why is this going to happen? 11.4. Thus said the Lord, my God, become a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So now God is speaking to Zechariah and says, become a shepherd. So God tells Zechariah to act out this future chapter in Israel as a living parable. This was not new to Zechariah. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea also communicated some of their prophecies, not just by writing them out, but by acting them out in public. They would do these things to act out so they'd have this object lesson that people could see and have a picture burned into their mind of, here's what God is going to do. So Zechariah acts this out in public and also writes it down into Scripture. And so what we read here to the end of chapter 11 is the written account of the prophecy that Zechariah acted out as a visual representation of what was to come. And it's the tale of two shepherds. One good and one evil. 
Chapter 11, verse 7. So I became, I'm acting out now, the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named favor or graciousness. The other I named union or unity. And I tended the sheep with these two staffs. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also, shepherds or leaders, detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was a word from the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. In other words, pay me out. If you think I've done a job as a shepherd and you want me to go away, pay me my wages. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So God's shepherd comes to the sheep of Israel with two intentions. He has his two staffs. I want to give them grace, and I want to reconcile them to me and to each other. I want to extend grace, and I want reconciliation. And somehow, his, his ministry to, the, to Israel removes some of these false shepherds from their places of authority. But before they are removed, before this all happens, they reject him completely and lead the people to reject him as well. Sound familiar? And so the true shepherd breaks the staff called favor and union, and an image of Israel's rejection, as, as an image of Israel's rejection of his grace and efforts to bring them close. The false shepherds are shown paying out how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver to get the true shepherd out of their way. The money then ends up in the hands of some potters through the temple. What? So this hyperlinks both backwards and forwards in the Bible. It hyperlinks backward to Exodus 21. 30 pieces of silver is the amount that was paid for a lost or killed servant. If you had a servant, they were lost or killed by someone else, you would have to refund the person who that servant belonged to 30 pieces of silver. So the leaders of Israel are going to reject this coming shepherd king and say, you're only worth, you're just a servant. Your servant sends you away with 30 pieces of silver. It also hyperlinks forward that I think probably most of us are familiar with the passage in the Bible where this 30 pieces of silver comes into play. Matthew 26. It's the amount that the religious leaders of Israel paid Judas to betray Jesus and get him out of the way. And interestingly enough, Judas ends up feeling remorse and throws the money back into the temple. Sounds like Zechariah just said that. And even more interestingly, the religious leaders couldn't put the blood money back into the temple treasury. How big of them? Because it was blood money. So what did they do with it? They bought this field 
to bury foreigners. You know who they bought the field from? A potter. So the leaders of Israel here, 500 and something years before Jesus was ever born, Zechariah says, the leaders of Israel are going to reject him. They're going to try to get rid of him with 30 pieces of silver, and it's somehow going to be thrown into the temple and end up in the hands of a potter. You can't make this stuff up, folks. It doesn't matter what you see on YouTube about the Bible not being true. This is stunning accuracy. So boiled down, here's what we see. When the true shepherd king comes to Israel, he will be rejected by the leaders and the people. The leaders will pay 30 pieces of silver to get rid of him. It ends up with the potter. And the shocking rejection of Israel's true shepherd king ends up with the, the horrible choice of choosing a foolish leader over him who will ultimately destroy them. We see this prophecy fulfilled in John chapter 19, verses 14 through 15. Pilate is trying to release Jesus. The religious leaders have put him up for execution. Pilate is trying desperately to, to not kill Jesus because he doesn't want the trouble. It says in verse 14, so he says, hey, we could release Jesus. They say, no, crucify him. It says this in verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king, speaking of Jesus. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, the leaders of Israel answered, we have no king but Caesar. In that moment, they chose who would lead them. Not the shepherd king from God, but Caesar, the pagan king who has destroyed, raped, and pillaged across the face of the earth. That's who we want to lead us. Some of the most fateful words in human history. But how many times, we can, we can criticize Israel and the leaders of Israel so easily, but how many times has Travis Edgerton chosen a barbaric king that doesn't love me, a foolish king above my shepherd king. In verses 15 through 17, Zechariah puts on different clothes and he starts playing the part of the foolish shepherd, this king who Israel will choose over Jesus, over their Messiah. Here's how the foolish, evil king is described. He has total disregard for the sheep. He doesn't care at all for the people he rules. He does not lead in a way to heal or provide, but instead uses the people of Israel for his own selfish gain. And this is what Israel chose when they rejected Jesus as their king. And this is what we choose every single time we say no to God and yes to the foolish and evil tyrant named sin. Sin, rebellion against God is a tyrant, and he's evil. And he will use you, abuse you, and throw you away quick as that. 
And when we choose rebellion against God, it's not just the sin and the sadness of rebelling against God. It's that you are choosing a tyrant to rule over you instead. God offers a king, a ruler who will shepherd and care for you and me, and I choose someone who will abuse me and use me for its own gain. But, but, God is a resilient father. Even after all of this, he again extends hope. Long-suffering, patient, kind. What other God would come back again, again, and again, and again to reach the people who rebel and who say no to him and slam the door in his face over and over and over? The God of our Bible, that's who does this. The one true God is a God of love. Verse 17, this may not sound like hope, but it is. Woe to my worthless shepherd. That's the one that is going to stand in place where Jesus should have stood. Caesar, Rome, who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. You see, God will not tolerate the false, foolish, evil shepherd forever. You see people on the earth that get in charge of a country or a place and they just wreak havoc. They abuse people. They harm people. They use people. Don't you ever think for one second that God will let this go on forever. He will end it. Is Rome still in charge today? Is Rome still in charge today? No. You know why? God took them down. You know what he used? One of the main pillars he used to take down Rome? Christianity. Not through force, not with swords, but humble, riding on a donkey. That's how God took down Rome, along with some barbarians and stuff. <laughs> In the same breath that he prophesies Israel's prideful downfall at the hands of Rome, he also predicts Rome's downfall. And not only Rome, these words of Scripture echo down through the halls of history to a time when he will set everything right and turn this upside-down kingdom back right-side up again, and he will put Jesus on his throne. We may have to see it over and over again for a while. But we will see the end of this. One day, we will see the end of it. Jesus has been God's answer for this broken world from day one. And he always will be. And no matter how much the world rebels, we keep seeing Jesus undo the works of the world. And he will one day finish it all. So we've covered all this and you might be asking the question, so what do I do with Zechariah 9 through 11? This is a big chunk of scripture. It's thick with prophecy. It's thick with poetry. It's hard to understand. There's lots of promises. There's lots of ups. There's lots of downs. It's so grand. 
How could this prophecy to Israel with global ramifications have anything to do with little old me? Well, on a global scale, I think it is important. I don't think we should, as Christians, just like close our eyes to what's happening in the world and say, what's happening in my life? I think we should be aware of what's happening globally. I think we should be praying for what's happening globally. I think it does two things to us on a global scale. First of all, it explains why things are the way they are. The story we've seen in Zechariah today is true of the human condition at any scale and at any time in history. What you see Israel do in rejecting Jesus, it's not just Israel. You can scale that to any place, any time, all the way from a, a huge kingdom and empire down to the one person. And it will explain why things are the way they are. And unfortunately, I get the feeling that this world is going to be uh, riding this roller coaster with Israel um, and its rejection of Jesus until they finally realize he is their king. The gracious attempts of God to draw them back to himself seem to be on repeat, don't they? But their rejection of him also seems... um, pretty dug in. Back in 1948, after the horrors that the Jews experienced at the hands of the Nazis, God allowed them to come back and be a nation once again after thousands of years. And Israel, since 1948, has been a nation. This is after 2,000 years of the people not having a place to call home. And yet, 71 years later, Jesus is still predominantly not recognized as their Messiah. This isn't a dig on Israel. It's, just, it's really just the human condition put on display in the life of one nation. But I would encourage you, pray for the people of Israel, that they would recognize Jesus as their Messiah, because I have a feeling, don't take me to the bank on this, I have a feeling we're on this roller coaster with them until they realize it. Pray for the people of Israel to see Jesus as their Messiah. Another thing that I think this global view does is we have hope that it will not always be this way. We already kind of touched on this. What Jesus did in the first century and what he will do in a century to come will end the horror that we see every day and bring eternal peace and joy for those who surrender to Jesus. It's not always going to be this way. Take heart. As you watch the events of the world and it just seems ridiculous, take heart. But most of us in this room don't have influence on what happens on a global scale, do we? It's mostly out of our control. We, we shouldn't ignore it. It's very important. But it's just simply beyond our grasp and above our pay scale. So let's, let's scale it down to the personal, to you. Let me ask you a question. What do I have a ridiculous amount of influence over? Me. Me. Everything we see God saying can be scaled down to the life of an individual. And it all comes down to this Am I surrendered to Jesus? Am I surrendered to Jesus? First question I have to ask you in this room today is Have you put your faith in Jesus? And have you been saved from your sin? If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, the future promises do not apply to you. 
It's not a desire to be harsh. It's not a desire to be exclusive. It's just that God says in his word, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There's one door that leads to the Father in heaven, and his name is Jesus. That's exclusive. No, it's really kind that there's a door at all. Come to him. Respond to him. Surrender to him. Today, don't wait. Don't kick the can down the road like we see in the story. Israel saying, no, no, we don't want him here. We'll kick it down the road today. But not only that, if you have surrendered to him for your salvation, if you do love Jesus and have surrendered to him, ask this question, am I living in obedience to him? Or are you repeating the same mistakes of the foolish leaders of Israel and rejecting his leadership and blessings? I'm so grateful to have been in this church and to watch so many lives and people in this church do this right. And when God says go, you say yes. And when God says stop, you say yes. And when God says something else, you say yes. Whatever it is, yes. I have seen so many people live their lives this way. I am the beneficiary of great faith watching it in this family. Thank you for those of you who have lived this way simply saying yes to God at every turn, almost every turn. So many of us struggle with this, though. Am I repeating the same mistakes? If I'm not surrendered to Jesus in my life as a Christian, if I'm doing it my own way, how many invasions from the north is it going to take to humble you, humble me to the place where we finally let the shepherd king rule us as king? It's worth thinking about. It's worth taking a survey of your life and asking God, where am I in surrender to you? But here's what I see from Zechariah. God will fight for you. He will pursue you. And he will extend his grace no matter what it costs you. And you might have expected me to say no matter what it costs him. And that is true. It costs God, his son, Jesus. But here's what I see from Zechariah. God loves you so much and is so stubborn to pursue you that he will pursue you no matter what it costs you. No matter how many invasions from the north, no matter how many times your life has to be brought low, he will allow it so that your heart can be lifted up, so that you will put your faith in him. Don't test him on this. Trust me. Personally, trust me. Trust him. He will do what it takes. He will pursue you. But if you resist, it might be painful. So don't resist. With that, we're going to pray. Father in heaven, you're good. You extend hope, salvation, grace, peace, joy, all these things, and yet we are so quick to dismiss you. We are so quick to ungratefully push away the promises you have because we want to do it our way. Would you renew our hearts? Would you save us from ourselves? 
And would you help us to receive the king when he comes knocking on our door, unlike the people we see in the past? May we not repeat their mistakes, and may we enter into the joy of what it is to be not only saved by you, but ruled by you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.